Go ahead and stand your feet. We're going to read Psalm 51. I'm going to read that and then uh, we'll pray and get started. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we pray that you would pull back the curtain of your glory today. And show us, God, your magnificence. Show us just how full and overflowing is your steadfast love. And your abundant mercy. God teach us to deal with our sin. Teach us father to repent. Teach us Lord to. To seek a new heart. To trust you and value you and love you and seek you above all else. Father I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. So, uh, I love New Year's. Uh, you guys know that if you've been here very long. You're probably surprised I'm not going to preach on resolutions. It was very tempting, but uh, I decided not this year. We'll just stick in the Psalms. And so, <clears throat> so I'm going to give you an introduction about resolutions. <clears throat> so, one, one of the reasons I love resolutions is because I love making goals. And, and here's the heart of it, though. Man, it is incredibly exciting to me to think about what's God going to do in me this next year. Man, that, I can't tell you how thrilling that is. Um, I, that's one of the most exciting things in my life, is to think, what's God going to do in me this year? What, how's he going to change me? How's he going to make me more like Jesus? How's he going to shape me? How's he going to form me? I and mean, when I look back on my life, uh, I, man, I look back and I, I see that there were, there were sins that I was completely enslaved in. I could not get out of them. That by the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, God has, God has delivered me. Like, like I, I don't struggle with them. I don't even want him anymore. Like, he's changed even my desires. He's shaped. Um, I, I look back, I was thinking about this the other day. I look back to a time after my conversion when 
I struggled to share truth with people. I mean, I, I just did not come easy. It did not, it did not flow well. I struggled to get the conversation started. And, and, I, and I see that God has brought me to a place that that's not really a big struggle for me anymore. Not, not that I don't miss opportunities. I, I do sometimes. But, but God has really kind of worked in me this, this radar to be aware and, and to learn to share truth and to speak truth. And, and man, when I look at every area of my life, when I look at my marriage, I mean, I, I think, and, and again, you'd have to ask him about this, I think I say at least 85% less hurtful things now than I did when we first got married. I mean, I, I think I've learned. I think I've, uh, you know, God has changed my heart. God, God has changed my heart to the point that I don't have to say what I think anymore. There was a time where I think I thought I had to, you know, and, and I don't now. Like, there's a lot of things that go through my head. I'm like, no, just keep that to yourself. That's not, you shouldn't say that. And so it's exciting to me to see God change me. And so resolutions or goals are a way that I begin to think, man, what's God going to do next? You know, I mean, what's he going to do in me? What's he going to do at Lincoln? I mean, man, when you think about where our churches come from, you know, and, and, and what God has done through us and our missions program exploding and, and, and benevolence of homeless shelters on the horizon, man, what's God going to do? I mean, that's exciting to me. And so I like resolutions and and, and how that fits with today is that as I think about the biggest things that have changed in my life, the avenue that that's come through, that the change has come through, has always been confession and repentance. Does that make sense? Like, like, like it's the Holy Spirit's power. It's God doing the changing. It's God giving me a new heart. It's God changing my desires. But there's always been this, this avenue of confession and repentance that has, has been present there. Okay, so, so that, that's incredibly important because Psalm 51 is maybe the greatest passage in the Bible demonstrating, like giving us an example, a visual for what does it mean to confess and repent of your sin. Now, one of the cool things about Psalm 51 is we don't have to guess about the occasion. Like most of the Psalms, we don't have a context. This tells us exactly where this occurs in Scripture, okay? So the, the heading there, uh, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So maybe you don't know that story. If you don't know that story, here's your recap, okay? Here's, here's that story out of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So David is king. At this time, he is reigning over Israel. This is like his prosperity time. This is like his, his midlife. He's in his 50s probably, and he's finally arrived. He's not hiding in a cave anymore. He's not being chased by Saul anymore. The guy has kind of reached a place of prosperity and victory in his life. Uh, it's, it's good, okay? Second um, Samuel chapter 11, 1 gives us a detail that is, will always be a mystery to us, okay? We don't know why, why David did this, okay? For whatever reason, he did not go to the battle. Okay, so the kings all go out to war. David's a king. He should be going out to war. He's been a warrior king. That's been his wheelhouse. That's what he does. That's what he's good at. But for whatever reason, in 2 Samuel 11, 1, he stays home. Now, he must not have much to do because what we find in 2 Samuel 11, 1, or 11, 2 or 3, I can't remember which it is, he's, he's taking a nap. So, so David is napping and he's uh, on his couch. He gets up kind of late in the, in the afternoon and he's walking around on his roof. And he sees a woman, his roof is higher than everybody else's roof, so he looks down upon the city, and he sees a woman bathing. The woman is very beautiful. David looks, okay, at this point in time, he could have repented, he could have turned away from sin, he could have guarded his eyes, he could have done all kinds of things, he doesn't. He looks, and then he takes the next step, and he inquires about her. 
You know, hey, who is that gal? Hey, who lives on that corner house? Who lives in that duplex? You know, he inquires about her. He sends for her another step in the wrong direction, brings her to the palace. One thing leads to another, and David has a sexual affair with a married woman. The woman's name is Bathsheba. Okay? Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, what's interesting about that is Uriah is one of David's guys. David's got this group of guys that the Bible calls his mighty men. They are, they are like the, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the, you know, the Special Forces. That, that's who they are for David. But not only are they, are they a, uh, an incredible fighting machine, but they are valiant, godly men. All right, Devoted to David and devoted to the kingdom of God. And Uriah is one of those guys. And, and, and so David has committed adultery with one of his friend's wives. Well, about a month later, the woman gets pregnant. She tells David, I'm pregnant. Again, David's got a chance to repent. He's got a chance to make things right. But he begins to scramble. Is the air conditioner on? That is not me. I set them all on heat this morning, all right? I thought, I thought it feels like cold air. All right, well, somebody must be hot. Um, where are we at? David, okay. Okay. Uh, so he sends for your eye. Oh, no, no. Where was that in the story? Okay. Uh, he could. All right, I got it. I got it. He could have repented. He doesn't. What's he do? He sends for Uriah. He sends for Uriah under the guise of, I need to figure out uh, what's going on in the battle. Give me news of the battle. So he brings Uriah. What's his real motive? His real motive is he wants Uriah to be home, so Uriah will go home to his house, sleep with his wife, and then everybody will think, well, it was a premature baby, you know? And the timing will be a little bit off, but Uriah will think, well, th- this, is, this is my baby. Um, so David sends for Uriah, brings him back. But the problem is Uriah is too valiant. Like, he, he's too noble. He's, he's too good of a guy. He's too devoted to David. He's too good of a friend. And, and, and so he won't, he won't go home because the men, the army, is still out, sleeping under the stars, fighting the enemy. And your eyes like, man, I can't go home and sleep with my wife and have a good meal. And I can't do that when, when the men are out in the field. So, so he won't go home. So he sleeps at the palace. So David, frustrated, writes a letter to Joab, seals it up, and gives it to Uriah, basically sealing his own death warrant. The letter says, basically, Joab, put Uriah at the front, send him into the fiercest part of the battle, and then withdraw from him so that he'll be killed. But it works. Uriah is killed in battle. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and it seems like everything is going to be okay. But 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven ends the chapter with the following phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12 opens up with a confrontation. God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin. Now, here's just a good lesson. If ever you're going to confront a king with all all authority and power to take your life about his own sin, you ought to do it in a creative way, all right? So Nathan does that. He does it in a creative way. He doesn't just barge in there and say, Nathan, you're a big or David, you're a big sinner, you're a murderer and an adulterer. Yeah, I think he's a little afraid of what David might do. And so he does it in a creative way. What's he do? He tells a story. He tells a story about a man who has all kinds of sheep. This guy's got 10,000 sheep, you know, all over the hills. He's a wealthy, 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 wealthy man. Across the road is this poor little farmer who's got one ewe lamb. Now, some of you got lap dogs. This guy had a lap sheep, okay? He kept him, it says, the Bible says he kept him in his lap, fed him from his hand. I mean, this is, this is his pet. He's, he raises, like a, it's like a daughter to him, okay? 
And, and, and what, what does the, the rich man do? He gets a, a guest who comes to his house. He needs to fix a meal. And so instead of taking one of his 10,000 sheep, he goes across the road, forces and takes this guy's one lamb and butchers it for his guests. Well, David's infuriated. You know, what kind of guy would do that? What kind of wretch would do that? You know, and, he, and he, David even says, man, this, this guy should die. This, this guy, he, he ought to die. Well, verse 7 in 2 Samuel 12, David, or Nathan says to David, you are the man. You're the guy. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David finally repents. And we have this phrase, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I want you to insert Psalm 51 right there. Okay, so that's the context, and that's where Psalm 51 belongs. Now, this psalm teaches us, basically, gives a great example of how to rightly repent. Now, why do we need to know how to rightly confess and repent? Because I, I don't think everybody does it right. Um, I remember shortly after I got saved, uh, I went to uh, a, a dear, beloved person in my life who I knew didn't know Jesus. And I had just gotten saved. I would just been delivered. I was so excited about my salvation, and I went to him. And I wanted to share the gospel. I wanted to see where he was at in his soul. I, it was the most awkward thing you'll ever see. You know, I mean, I, I stumbled around and tripped around and finally kind of got it out, you know, of, of, hey, man, I'm concerned about your soul. I don't know where you are with Jesus. Let me tell you what happened to me. And, and he, he kind of ended the conversation. He kind of he quieted me. You know, he, was just, he dismissed me, basically. And, and he did so by saying, D -d -d don't worry about me. I confess my sins every night. He says, I confess all my sins every night. And, and I remember, I didn't know enough about the Bible to know where to go from there. Like, like, it was like, oh, okay, you know. But I remember walking away thinking, I don't think you're doing it right, you know, Be, because there's no transformation in his life. Like, what, what he essentially meant was, ever, ever at the end of the day, I, I tell God about all the bad stuff I did, and then I go you know, to sleep and then get up in the morning and do it all again. And then at the end of the day, I tell God all the bad stuff I did and get up, you know. And, 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 but again, I didn't really know where to go from there. We just kind of left the conversation at that point. I got a chance later on uh, to talk to him. Some good things happened. But, but at that point, I, I knew, look, that's not real confession. I mean, where there's no life transformation, where there's no hatred and brokenness over sin, and there's no change of heart, it's not true confession. It's not true repentance. And so what we see in Psalm 51, I think, are three crucial aspects of what it means to really deal with your sin as far as confession and repentance. And so those are the three things that I, that I want us to look at uh, this morning real quickly. All right. So the first one is a right focus. Now, this one's going to color everything else that we're going to say today. All right. I'm going to keep bringing you back to this one because it's super important. It is super important when you're confessing and repenting of sin where you're looking. Okay. Okay, so where your focus is, what your focus is upon. Now, clearly, verse 1, David tells us what he's looking at. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to, that's a, that's a great transitional phrase, according to your steadfast love. Okay, now, first of all, that, that is the most important word in the, New, in the Old Testament right there. That word steadfast love, it's the word hesed. It is God's covenantal love. Nobody loves like God loves, okay? That, that's what that word is all about. It, it is an unfailing, never-ending persevering, steadfast, always, forever kind of love, okay? And so David says, man, God, have mercy on me. Why, why does he say mercy? Because he knows he's in sin, all right? And sin is serious business. Sin is rebellion against the king of the universe. It's a cancer that kills. It brings death. It spoils. It murders. There is no good sin. 
by the way. There is no tame sin. There is no acceptable sin. There's no tolerable sin. There's no harmless sin. Sin brings death. And when you're in sin, the only thing that will save you is God's mercy. And so David appeals to God's mercy, and he appeals to it on the basis of what's he looking at? What's he staring at? He's staring at God's steadfast love and God's abundant mercy. That is his focus. In other words, you can't make an appeal for mercy by looking at anything else other than God's awesomeness. Okay, so let let, let me show you how this works. So on the one side, you're always going to have people that when they confess their sin, they do it sort of like this. God, I know I lost my temper, but man, those kids, and God, they're here all day for Christmas break, you know, and and they're driving me crazy, and you know, I don't know what else I could have done. You know, God, I, I, I know I, I said some mean things there, but, but man, God, that person's been a thorn in my flesh, and they've done this, and they've done that. And, or, or God, I, I know I shouldn't have thought that, but Lord, what do you expect when my life has been so hard? Do you, you see what, what that kind of confession does? That kind of confession is, God, I'm confessing my sin, and I think you should forgive me. And you should forgive me because really I'm not that bad of a person. Really, I'm, uh, you know, it, it couldn't be helped. Uh, it, it's, re- it's really acceptable in some way. No, 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 that's completely wrong. In fact, notice what verse 5 says. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, and my mother conceived me. You know what that essentially says? I was born horribly broken. I was born with a heart that is capable of terrible things. I cringe every time we have a story like David and Bathsheba in like a Sunday school class, and somebody makes the comment, I'd never do that. That is theologically wrong. Okay, to, to, for you to say, uh, you know, I would never do something like that. I mean, your heart is broken and wicked. And given the right circumstances and the wrong opportunities, you are capable of terrible things. Right, that, that's, that's what the Bible says about us. Right, and so, so, so the only reason, we, we, can't, we can't confess and, and repent of sin by, by saying, but God, you know, I did it, but it wasn't that bad, or I'm really a good person. No, that, we, we can't stand on that. Our gaze has to be the only reason I can open my mouth in confession and have a reasonable amount of confidence that God will not strike me dead on the spot is because he's awesome. He's awesome. That's where my eyes have to be, on God's character. Okay, now on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who confess their sin, and they go the other direction. They confess their sin, and when they confess their sin, it goes something like this. You stupid, 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 stupid. You know, you are so, ah, I'm so mad at myself, and I'm, I'm so worthless. And why do I keep doing that? I'm just so tired of, of, of sin, and I'm so tired of blowing it, and I'm so tired of spiritual failure, and God, I'm not even worthy to look up at you, and God, I, I just, I'm terrible, and I know you don't want to hear it, and God, I know you're tired of my excuses, and you're tired of me being on this roller coaster of spiritual life, and God, it's just Groundhog Day, every, you know, in my spiritual life, just over and over again, and you know, I, I, I know you don't even want to hear it, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I shouldn't even come to you. Now, let me be careful here. Do I believe all of that is true? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not arguing with me. Have, have I acted stupidly when I sin? Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So I'm not arguing with the factualness of what I just said. But here's what I'm saying. That's not helping. It's not helping you confess and repent. You know why? What are you looking at? You. You're looking at you. 
and, and you're berating. A lot of people confess their sin when they do so. It's almost like, well, I've got to berate myself for two, three days, and then I'll feel like, okay, I'm forgiven now. I've, 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 I've you know, hung my head and walked around like a dog for a couple days, and so now it must, I've, I've paid my price. That's the way a lot of people look at that. You're still looking at you. Hey, let, let me ask you this. How did you get into the sin? You know how you got into sin? You weren't looking at God. You, you, you weren't rejoicing in God. You weren't trusting God. You, you, you weren't looking at His glory. You got into the sin by looking at the wrong thing. You're not going to get out of the sin by looking at the wrong thing. And, and so verse 1 gives us a great guide for the rest of the confession and repentance. And, and it's this. When you confess and repent of your sin, your gaze has got to be on the steadfast love of God and His abundant mercy. It's got to be on God's character, on God's awesomeness. That is what really matters as we confess our sin. Now, verse 3 and 4. David finally comes clean with his sin, okay? So he says in verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. He's not trying to hide it. And in fact, he's saying, you know what? I, I can't get away from my sin. It's, it's everywhere. Have you ever had a spot on your glasses, you know, like a big, and it just like drives you crazy because that's all you can see? Okay, that's what David is saying about his own sin. He's saying, man, I, I, I can't get away from it. You know, it, it's everywhere. You know, have you ever kind of smelled something funky and it was, it was at home and it was in your car and it was at work, you know, and about midway through the day you finally realized it was your sweater, you know, or it was, you know, it was you, okay? That, that's what David's saying. He's got this cloud, this darkness. In, in fact, do you remember Psalm 32? Psalm 32, David said, your hand is heavy upon me. In, in other words, he just got this oppression, this, and, and that's a gift of God. We talked about that when we talked about Psalm 32. That's what God will do if you're a believer. If you're a believer, he will not let you ignore your sin. He won't let you act terrible and say horrible things and just press on without confession and repentance and getting right with him. In fact, I would tell you this. If you can do that, you're not a believer. You're not his child. If you can live in your sin and not be bothered by it and not, and not be forced to a place of confession and repentance, then you're not a believer. And so David brings that up in, in verse 4. He, he, he said, or in verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before, you, before me. And then, then he says, this is, this is the really good part. This is point number two. He gets to the root of his sin. Okay, so point number one, your gaze has got to be on God. Point number two, you've got to get to the root of your sin. Notice the root of his sin. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, hold on. I thought we just went over the context of this, okay? And, and isn't it true that David sinned against Bathsheba? I mean, he, he brought a woman into an adulterous relationship. Isn't it true that he sinned against Uriah? I mean, he, he committed adultery with this man's wife. I mean, isn't it true that he sinned against Bathsheba's family and Uriah's family and having Uriah murdered? I mean, David sinned against all kinds of people, but yet in verse 4, as he's dealing with his sin, as he's confessing his sin to God, this is incredibly important, he... He clarifies, God, the real problem is between me and you. That's the real problem. Man, I can't tell you how helpful that is when you are confessing and repenting of your sin to realize that the root of your sin is between you and God. It is your attack on God. It is your functionally saying, God, I don't want you. Whatever your sin is, whether it's pride, whether it's greed, whether it's harshness, whether it's words that you spoke, whether you hurt people, whatever your sin is, 
the, the heart of that, the root of that, is you don't want God. For that moment, at least, you, you didn't want Him. You didn't believe Him. You didn't trust Him. You didn't value Him. Now, again, I think, I think some people are going to say, whoa, 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 back up. We, we just read the context of this. We read about David not going out to war and staying home and seeing a naked woman and lusting after her and taking the steps. And so th- that's what this is about, Pastor. I mean, when he confesses, he should confess, you know, God, God you know, I, I shouldn't do this or that or these practices. I mean, some people might make this all about modesty, you know. You know, we could make a, a sermon on, you know what, ladies, don't bathe on top of your roof. That'd be hard for a lot of us with slander roofs, but don't do that. I mean, don't, don't be naked on public. And that's true. Please, I don't, don't hear me saying it's not true. Don't be naked out in public, all right? There you go, all right? That's not the root of David's sin. That's not his problem. You see, a lot of people might make this about personal fulfillment, you know? David was not feeling satisfied with his dozen or so beautiful wives and concubines. That's not the heart of this. That's not what this is about. So many wives say, well, David needed an accountability partner, you know, to handle his lust and to, you know, you know keep him accountable. That's not what this is about. What this is about is fundamentally every sexual sin, along with every other sin, at its root, is about not wanting God. It's an attack on God. Whatever your sin is, that's what it's about. If you don't believe me, look at 2 Samuel when he is confronted. So so Nathan confronts David and, and speaks for the Lord. And here's what the Lord says to David. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Okay, the man in, in the story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms. And I've given you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. And then verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? You see, David would have never said that. You know, as, as David was, was covering his tracks, David would have never held up his Bible and said, I hate this. But it's exactly what's going on in his heart. Keep reading. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in, in, in sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Did you hear that? The sword will never, dis- never uh, leave your house. It will never depart from your house because you have despised me. God, God is interpreting what, what happened in that sin. He's saying, David, you sinned. Why? Because you hated me. Now, see, this is really getting down to the crux of things, isn't it? Do you see how we, our, our confession and repentance could, could, could not be deep enough? So if, if we're just saying, ah, oh, God, you know, I lost my temper. Help me to be more self-controlled. Is that really what that's about when you lose your temper? When you lose your temper and throw this huge fit and yell at everybody and scream at them, is, it, is, is, is what you need to do is say, God, forgive me for not being more self-controlled. Help me be more self-controlled. That's not the issue. The issue is you threw the fit because you loved your own glory more than you loved God's glory. That's why you threw the fit. You threw the fit because people bothered you and, and, and struck out at you and, and hurt you and you were so infuriated about that injustice in your own soul that you were willing to sin against God to protect your own honor, supposedly. 
That's the root of it. How about, I I was trying to think of sins that we might not normally think of as being against God. How about self-pity? You ever do the pouty around thing, huh? Walk around, kicking dirt, huffing. Not the drug kind, but the... You ever do that? That's sin. That's it. What was our verse for today that we're supposed to be praying? This is the day the Lord has made it. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Would you ever walk around just all mad at everything and, and feeling sorry for yourself? Yeah, what's the root of that? Well, we, you know, we could say, God, forgive me for being down. It's just that, you know, the cars broke down and there's no money in the checkbook and, you know, my leg hurts and, you know, my family didn't come see me for Christmas and circumstance, circumstance, circumstance. What, what's the real root? The, the real root of that is, is it's between us and God, isn't it? The, the real root of self-pity is we're saying this. Our heart is saying this. God, you are not enough. Isn't that right? Anytime we're, 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 we're all kicking dirt and, and self-pity, we're saying, God, you're not enough. Forgiveness, not enough. Holy Spirit, not enough. Salvation, not enough. New heavens and new earth coming, not enough. God, none of that stuff's enough. It cannot make me happy. I will not be happy. I need other things, God. Money's better than you. Health is better than you. That's what we're saying. And so that's why David is so wise here. He gets right to the root. Whenever you break his command. I was talking with some folks about this this week. Whenever, whenever you go against what this clearly says, what, what's the deal there? Well, in our heart, the deal is we're saying, God, I don't think you're right. You're wrong on this deal. God, you're ignorant in this area. You don't know what I know. That's why I'm doing this. You said do this. I'm not doing that. I'm doing something else. All sin is against God. And so as we confess and as we repent, we got to get here. Any kind of confession and repentance that doesn't deal with a messed up heart, the fact that, that my sin is against God, my heart is not right against God, this is, is, is not deep enough. So number one, our eyes got to be on God, His character, His goodness, His awesomeness. That's our only hope. That's what I'm clinging to. Number two, got to get to the root of my sin. And the root of my sin is unbelief. It's it's not believing that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. I've got a deficient view of God in some way. And so, for repentance and confession to be fulfilled, there's got to be a change of heart. Right? David's saying, my heart's got to change. So, what does he do? Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, God, you've got to change my heart. Any kind of confession and repentance that does not lead to a change of heart is not the real deal. There's got to be a change of heart. What, what's the definition of repentance? Any scholars in here? The definition of repentance, the most simple definition of repentance is a change of mind. That, that's actually what it is. Now, I believe that in the context of the Scriptures, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a, a change of life. Okay, that's the way I would express it fully. But the most clear Greek definition of repentance is a change of mind. Now, what are, when you're repenting, when David's repenting, what is he changing his mind about? Hey, you know what? I shouldn't watch gals bathe on roofs. Is that what he's changing his mind about? I mean, that's an implication. 
hey, you know what? I shouldn't invite ladies to the palace, you know, by themselves, whose husbands are away from war. Well, that's true. Is that what he's changing his mind about? No. What's he changing his mind about? God. You see? It, it, repentance and confession are fundamentally a changing of the heart about God. When, when, when you come to the point where you say, God, I am completely convinced you won't let me down. God, I'm completely convinced you're everything that I need. God, I'm completely convinced that you're glorious in every way. God, I'm completely convinced that you're everything I need. That's a changed heart. And by the way, that is the most powerful deterrent to sin. Man, when you think about what's going to keep you out of sin, that, that is going to keep you out of sin. A heart that says, God, you're the best thing. See, a lot of people aim only at more willpower. That's, that's why resolutions get a bad name. That's why whenever I talk about New Year's resolution, I get all these eye rolls, you know? Because everybody thinks about, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, I'm going to go to the gym, it lasts one day and it's over, you know? <clears throat> that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, God, would your Holy Spirit work in me a changed heart so that I, I see you for who you are and I trust you. And as I trust you, my life begins to change in radical ways. So David asked, God, change my heart. Change my heart. Notice two times. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And what's that about? Two times in this prayer for a new heart, he says, God, give, give me joy. Bring back my joy. Now, what, what's he talking about? Well, number one, Sin always takes you away from joy, okay? So sin always leads to misery. Now, it may take a little bit, but it's going to get there. You're, I promise you it will get there. Sin always leads to misery. That, that's just a great functional way to, to fight sin is just in your mind say, okay, this is not God's plan. It's not God's way. It's not cherishing God. It's not loving God. It's not putting him first. Therefore, it will eventually lead to misery, okay? But, but, even more pertinent to this passage, the second thing we should say about joy is, Joy in God is the great defense against sin. All right, and so, so as David is saying, creating me a clean heart, what's, what's he essentially saying? What is a clean heart? Is, is it, you see, we might think a clean heart is a heart that, you know, it's been all kind of washed up and forgiven and, 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 and true, true. Okay, but you know what a clean heart is? A clean heart is a heart that cherishes God for who he is. That's what a clean heart is. A clean heart is a, is, is a heart that says, God, man, I see your glory. I see how awesome you are. I see how good you are. And so, so why does he say, restore to me the joy of your salvation? He, he's cultivating a heart that is joyful in God. Because when, when your heart is excited about God, when your heart is excited about who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do, you, you don't want to sin. You don't want to sin. It, it, it's a great defense against sin. We're out of time, but, but let, let, me, let me give you two implications of confession and repentance this way. So, so let's, let's just say, this morning here, maybe you're coming in, and maybe as, as we've been moving through the Scriptures, God's heavy hand starting to press on you, okay? It's starting to press on you. You're, you're starting to say, okay, God, I know. I know I'm not right in this area. God, I know that I sinned. I sinned yesterday. I sinned this morning. I sinned today. I sinned last week. God, I know I haven't dealt with that. I haven't confessed that. And so, so now you're, 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 you should go through that process now. 
you, you should lift your eyes heavenward and you should plead for God's mercy based on his steadfast love and his, his abundant, you're, you're looking at him, you're saying, God, you're so awesome, that's my only hope of being forgiven is what you did for me on the cross through Jesus Christ. And then you get right to the root of the matter. God, I did that because I, I didn't believe that you are who you are. I did that and it was an offense against you. God, I wasn't believing that, that you're great as you, as you are. And I wasn't believing that you're everything I need. God, I sinned against you. My heart was not right with you. And so God, change my heart. God, bring me back joy in you. God, let me see your glory. So that, that's what's happening in you right now. Is, is you're going through that process. You know, what, you know where that's going to end up? Look at this. Verse 12. Resort to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Okay, stop right there. No, 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 let's keep going. Okay, so keep that in mind. We gotta hurry. So I'm gonna put these together. So mission, okay, what's he saying? He's saying, God, give me a new heart, and by God, I'm gonna go out and tell people about you. I'm gonna go out and tell people about what you've done. I'm gonna go make disciples. I'm gonna go start a group. I'm gonna go get, you know, I'm gonna go get people that I can tell about Jesus. Next verse, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. All right, so, so two things here. David says, as I, as I experience the forgiveness of the Lord, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go out and tell people about Jesus, and I'm going to sing his praise. Now, here's why I love that. When people confess the other way, kind of the fake way, that never happens. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to uh, and I'll, I'll ask them about, you know, hey, what's your ministry? What, you know, are you, are you sharing Jesus with others? And they'll, they'll say something like this, you know, I'm just, I'm just too messed up. I just got too much on my plate, Pastor. I, I struggle with too many things. I don't feel like I'm worthy to go. Well, yeah, because you're confessing wrong. You know, the way, the way you're dealing with your sin is, I'm stupid, stupid, stupid. I'm an idiot. You dummy. And you're just gazing at yourself, you know. You're looking at your belly button, you know, like this, you know. You're just staring at it about how terrible you are and beating yourself up. And then you raise your head and you, you come to church and, you know, sit. And I, I shouldn't praise. I shouldn't. I'm, I'm just too bad. Well, yeah, you are bad. I'm not arguing with that. But Jesus is awesome. That's what you're neglecting to see. And he died on the cross for your sins. And if you repent, he'll change your heart and change the way you see him. And then you know what you do? Then you're like, man, I've got to tell people. Your head's high. Your radar's on. You're ready to share Jesus with people, and you're ready to sing. Bonnie gets up and says, turn the page. You can't wait, you know. You're starting before her, you know. The piano's not even in the introduction, and you're belting out. God is awesome. Isn't it cool that a guy, <laughs> this is going to bother some people, I bet you anything. A guy that's just committed adultery and murdered somebody, is talking about how he's going to go share Jesus with others. Now, see, I think there's a lot of people would say, that guy, he's, he's done. He shouldn't share with anybody. He needs to pay for his sins. Well, are we going to apply that to everybody? you going to pay for yours? That happens in hell, by the way. Now, did David have consequences on his life for the rest of his life? Yep, he did. We've talked about that before. His family was a disaster. He had great pain because of this dumb thing he did. But you know what? He was forgiven. He was restored. He went on to write psalms like this one. He went on to teach you about God. That's what ought to happen in your life if you're confessing and repenting rightly. 
So let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to ask you, God, to just by your Holy Spirit to move across this, um, this auditorium. And God, I pray that you'd lay your, your hand heavy upon things that need to be repented of. God, if there's, um, if there's sin that needs to be dealt with, there's hearts that aren't trusting and cherishing and loving and seeing you for who you are, God, I pray that you would just bring about a great conviction and there would be a turning to you today, a, a lifting, lifting of eyes to look at your character and to look at who you are and what you've done and, and to deal with sin rightly, to get right to the root of it. And Father, we, we pray just like David did. Lord, you, you taught us to do this, so we have great confidence in it. God, create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in us. Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation. And put in us a willing spirit. Father, bring great forgiveness. Bring a great washing and cleansing and purifying. And God, bring joy back. God, I pray that we might leave here today ready to be on mission, ready to be bold, ready to, to worship, ready to celebrate all that you are for us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.